Hi everyone, I'm Les. And I'm Ashley. And you're listening to Anthropotamus, where we explore some of your favorite anthropology topics. Good morning, everybody. We are here with Dr. Mark Epricht of Queen's University today, who focuses on research in South Africa. Uh, we'll be reviewing his article, Bisexuality in the Politics of Normal and African Ethnography. How are you doing today? Great. Absolutely. We are so excited to have you on today. This was a very interesting article. Um, but let's go ahead and can you tell the listeners a little bit about your background and research in South Africa? Yeah, well, uh, I'm based, my research is currently based in South Africa, but I started out in Lesotho and Zimbabwe, actually. And so I think I was in Zimbabwe when I was doing the research for this, this particular article. Uh, anyways, um, I am actually a historian. And um, uh, when I was probably your age, I, I think I had just finished my MA and uh, an opportunity came up to travel to Zimbabwe, which had just become independent. And so, yeah, I, I was teaching there in high school out in the bush. You know, it was really exciting for about three years. And then I realized I need to understand more about this place. So that inspired me to go back and do um, a PhD. And um, yeah, then I went back to Zimbabwe after I got my PhD. Uh, again, just following my nose serendipitously, there was a job at the university there. Um, and I got it in the history department. I arrived in Zimbabwe just almost exactly the time when the president started making speeches around the country. Uh, denouncing gays and lesbians as um, kind of avatars of Western colonialism, which seemed a bit odd to me. Um, I mean, I knew from my previous experience teaching in a boarding school that, uh, you know, uh, these things went on as you would intuitively uh, expect. Um, Africans are human beings after all. So it just seemed really, really weird to me that the, the president was going on and on and on, um, you know, basically saying that uh, homosexuality was introduced to the country by, um, by people from the West, either missionaries. He didn't get down to details, but it was something that then was framed in a way that it becomes a patriotic duty for Zimbabweans to resist um, and um, yeah, I thought well, this looks like a nice little project to investigate, and that's what got me started. Oh, uh, so we'll go ahead and jump right into the article. You mentioned uh, in your article that anthropologists sometimes conscripted select evidence and even fabricated facts in order to advance ideals and, and preferences around sexuality in their own societies. Can you explain to our listeners why it was so important for Westerners to identify African cultures as purely heter heterosexual? Well, I mean, it seems to me that there's a... Uh, um, a juncture of uh, different prejudices coming together at the same time, you know, and at that time, we're talking the late 19th century, early 20th century, there was this presumption that uh, homosexuality was a manifestation of a decadent kind of over-civilization, right? That um, a culture becomes decadent after a certain period of time, and then 
you know, will fall uh, to another uh, more virile civilization. So there's this kind of uh, gender ideology that is superimposed on uh, kind of the march of history, right? So people would point to the fall of Rome, say they started out as a, you know, really virile warrior uh, nation and uh, became this great empire, but then became a decadent, self-indulgent, uh, over-luxurious, and one aspect of that was to um, to allow for sexual, um, using the language of the time, deviance, and that gave uh, that led to uh, the loss of this civilizational virility, and uh, you know the Huns and Goths and all those barbarians came in and overthrew it. So there's that that kind of stereotype of homosexuality as um, as a weakening factor in um, masculinity and then there's also this stereotype of Africa as a place that is uncivilized right and there's this need to believe that Africans needed uh, white folks to come and uh, you know teach them how to be real people uh, and also to protect them. So in the hierarchy of the racist beliefs of the time, you know, the uh, Africans were kind of at the bottom, whereas Northern Europeans were at the top. And Southern Europeans, like the Portuguese, mm, a bit, you know, dubious. And then people from the Middle East or Asia were regarded as being you know, sort of semi-civilized and also prone because the semi-civilization and a bit of decadence they had a tendency to be um, to, to be tolerant towards homosexuality so there is this you know confluence of prejudices that come together and to partly this is one of many things to justify colonialism but uh, to protect Africans from the corrupting influence of the Arabs or, um, yeah, mainly the Arabs in, in, in the Africa case, yeah. Or Turks, yeah. So, I mean, the, the article is basically, you know, anthropologists coming in, observing, um, you know, this culture and completely ignoring or making up excuses for the homosexual acts which i find i mean i'm i mean i guess i understand it we're considering the time period we're talking about but at the same time i'm just like how do you completely ignore this complete uh section of their culture to to justify your own beliefs um i find i find rather amazing but i guess at the same time not very surprising <laughs> yeah well i mean um so here, I'm obviously, for the purposes of this interview, I'm grossly uh, overgeneralizing and, and simplifying. But um, I think it's fair to say that most African cultures, you know, they didn't have a category of out gay. Uh, and, you know, talking about any sexuality was kind of a taboo thing, right? So um, it's not something that was really out there that you know, a visitor would come and, and see. Uh, so it, it required some probing and trust on the side of the people who were, you know, being interviewed or observed. And so 
unless you really specifically are asking for it and looking for it, it would be difficult to see a no in, in most cases. Okay. So I, I would think, though, that if you're there long enough, you would start, if you were there long enough observing and li- living among them for extended period of time, you would eventually come across homosexual acts and, and couples. Um, and when they and in cases where they did, um, can you tell our listeners how they would explain that to to keep their heterosexual narrative? Right. Well, uh, in most cases, they wouldn't bother. They would see it as such an outlier that it wasn't worth discussing. Or if they did, they'd put it in uh, maybe a footnote. Or uh, I mean, in my research, often I would find uh, an entire book of 300 pages, whatever, and there might be one sentence. So downplaying its significance or simply not mentioning it at all. Um, in cases where it was kind of hard to ignore, uh, then, you know, there would be uh, rationalizations. Uh, and the main one, as I've mentioned, is the influence of corrupting forces from outside. Uh, so, for example, um, now we're moving ahead in time here, but I remember the very first book now was it an anthropologist i think it was yeah writing about um um prisons and this like we're talking 1969 if you can believe it this is the first monograph that talks about homosexual relations in prisons among men uh which shows you like prisons were there for long before and there were same-sex relations uh, long before but no one actually wrote about it until 1969 so you know uh, these are, from the point of view of the colonial governments and, and post-colonial, there's a lot of continuity, actually. But this was somewhat embarrassing. You know, you're coming to the country uh, to civilize it, so-called, um, and then you have these behaviors appearing. So it's like, no, that's a contradiction. Things are supposed to be getting better for people, right? And, and they're becoming more moral. They're becoming more civilized up to... Um, a certain level so when you have uh, these behaviors happening it, it's it's kind of something that is preferred to be hush hushed anyways uh, and that going back to that uh, case of the monograph on prisons so the way they explained it there and and that was in uganda so yeah they, they have this category of kind of real africans so the people of uganda and then there were um, Somalis and Swahili people, which they had a, a different category. They're, they're more influenced by the Middle East culture. And so the rationalization was, well, Ugandans were being corrupted by these non-Ugandan uh, black people. And so, yeah, that was a typical um, way of explaining it. I actually have something that y- you touched on just now that um, I thought was very interesting, and that's the... Uh the contradiction of needing uh, of the Europeans doing settings needing Africans to be closer to nature and thus not be interested in homosexuality or anything like that, but also trying to develop them and become more civilized, which then is going to lead to this decadence. That whole co- that that area of contradiction just struck me as. Um, 
it's almost funny to be honest because you're, you're what was what were your thoughts on that particular contradiction while you were doing the study well yeah i get what you're saying it is it does seem ridiculous but the way they explained it it was a delicate balancing act and there was even a a book written early on, I think in the 1920s, um, which uh, it was by a British uh, administrator, and he he called it the dual mandate, which means, um, yes, we Brits and Europeans are here to civilize Africans, but we have to do this very carefully, because if we move too fast, it's going to destabilize them, and it's going to lead to all kinds of moral, or they used the, even the word demoral, uh, demoralization. So the trick is, the dual mandate is, on the one hand, you teach a small number of Africans to read and write and, and, and bring them into the civilized world, so-called, but the majority population you need to keep in a kind of traditional way of life. You keep their chiefs, keep their customs with the, uh, you know, those that are kind of abhorrent, like uh, the murder of uh, twins kind of thing. Those things were repressed, but... Otherwise, you know, the majority of Africans could keep their their traditional way of life. So that's the balancing act. Uh, don't move too fast on the road to civilization. And if you do, yeah, then all kinds of trouble comes into play. It sounds very much like a half measure to me. Yeah, well, obviously, this whole thing is a, it's a fantasy, right? That you can yeah. rule over another group of people for extended periods of time and and deny them justice and abuse them and all that and think you're doing a good thing right and that you're you're bringing christianity and bringing this and that so um it was a fantasy of identities okay and then also um in your opinion what do you think was the final push that changed the anthropological perspective regarding homosexuality in africa um well, I think anthropologists began to think more critically about the discipline in probably the late 60s and uh, 70s and just to reflect on their own role as, you know, handmaidens of colonialism, uh, really, uh, and to bring in a, a sharp self-critique and, and look at, uh, you know, methods and assumptions that aligned very closely with the colonial project and to to distance themselves from that and so really in a, it's pretty well in the 70s that uh, anthropologists begin to uh, just look a lot closer at this particular blind spot unless you have any other questions well most of my questions as as usual were answered <laughs> during um you know the the rest of your explanation so i don't want to i don't want to you know double track over too many things here um no i guess for now uh that that would be all i have i would i would love to talk to you about this again in the future or another article sure yeah well you know it, it uh once once you start digging on this, uh, it uh, it connects to so many other issues. As obviously, I've been talking colonialism, apartheid. Um, it's and then we're talking gender relations. You know, the whole colonial project depended on restructuring African society in a way that served, you know, global capitalism. And uh, 
Yeah, so yeah, once you start pulling at that string, it unra uh, unravels a lot of other questions. So yeah, I, I kept it up for, uh, well, I'm still working on it. Actually, it's decades later. Uh, so what are you, what are you, what do you plan on researching next or what are you working on now? Well, um, I'm actually trying to get myself out of this topic. At the time I started, you know, it was still pretty taboo, um, you know, for young African scholars to to do this, to ask these questions, and people would immediately assume, aha, you must be gay yourself. And there's all kinds of stigma. <laughs> really, even today, it's, it's pretty bad. But it has, uh, in 20 years, there's been a lot of progress. And so there's a, a new generation of of African scholars who are taking this on, which to me is extremely appropriate. And so I'm trying to get myself out of that line of research and to support uh, African students uh, and uh, young scholars to, to take it on. And they're a better position due to language and other uh, cultural issues. Um, and so that's, so I am trying to ext extricate myself, but there's little projects that just keep coming up. Um, which uh, I'll give one example in um, so in South Africa it's, yeah it has this fantastic constitution right uh, that protects people against discrimination on the basis of all kinds of uh, identity categories including sexual orientation and uh, gender expression um, so it's a world-class constitution in terms of human rights but on the ground there's still a really lot of homophobia and um, violence directed against people. And the assumption is that this, that kind of homophobia comes from traditional culture. And uh, that as people move to the city, as they become educated, whatever, that, that homophobia will fade away. And I take the opposite uh, position, as you know from the, the reading there, that the traditional culture actually had space and was kind of pragmatic in recognizing that uh, human beings don't all fit into this neat category of either or, uh, right? So the, the homophobia is more associated with modernization, actually, than uh, the traditional setting. And so a project I've been working on with a colleague in KwaZulu-Natal, uh, who is a native speaker of Zulu, uh, we went up into the rural areas, like far from the city, and just wanted to test this out. And, and sure enough, yeah, we found all kinds of... Uh, people who identify as all different uh, gay, lesbian, um, trans, uh, queer, they had different ways of labeling themselves, or not at all, but they were living uh, a life with, uh, uh, including intimacy with someone of the same sex. Uh, and that's in the rural areas, right? And so sometimes they described, you know, going to town and experiencing worse discrimination and stigma than back in the village so yeah that's that's what we're working on so it kind of trips up that narrative of yeah you follow this path to modernization and things are going to get better what i think i'm saying is that there are elements in traditional culture that are probably worth looking at closely and and protecting uh from some of the uh well i'll say pernicious influences of uh, modern global culture which i find interesting is because reading your article i almost felt like we it would be difficult to use our western to 
traditional definitions of heterosexuality and homosexuality and apply it to uh, these cultures in the, in the early 1900s um, because the way they, they saw marriage and uh, sexual relationships seemed very different than how we, how we did and it wasn't really a clean-cut uh, definition for them. I can tell one kind of funny story because I went to uh, I went to Swaziland kind of in the same Eswatini now um, the same idea so when I was doing my research someone mentioned to me oh you know uh, the uh, the king in so it's absolute monarchy still um, and it's supposed to be very traditional society uh, very small cities mostly rural and yeah traditional um, and someone said to me, do you know the king of Swaziland had commissioned the TV channel, there's only one there, uh, to do research because he'd heard that there was this issue of, you know, male-male sex associated with people going to the mines, right? And the men going to the mines and and the women are staying behind, right? And he'd heard the men were uh, getting into uh, homosexual relations at the mines. So he, the king, commissioned this documentary um, uh, which was aired on t- TV in Eswatinia. I, I have to go there and get that, right? So I went, and uh, I went to the TV station. Have you got this? Have you heard about this? Oh, yeah, we heard about it, but, uh, yeah, we don't know where it is and whatever. Uh, so I was never able to find it, but one of the things that stuck in my mind because the, the TV people there were actually quite, uh, you know, well-educated, and they knew the ways of the world, um, and they described it to me, and... and Basically, what sticks out in my mind is um, they, the documentarist went around to these villages and asked the chief, you know, have you heard about this? And, and the bottom line was, you know, he said, you know, we don't care uh, as long as ultimately the penis goes in the vagina and there's a child. That's all we care about, right? So this other stuff, just be quiet about it. It's not our business. And so that was that's kind of the, the marker of what proper and meaningful sex is everything else yeah um, it's not our business <laughs> uh, I like it mind your business <laughs> I feel like everybody everybody should uh, probably mind their business more often uh, one of the funny things in uh, in the Zimbabwe case when I was there and I started this um, my assumption was the the president Mugabe was was doing this, you know, like in the West, you know, politicians will try and whip up um, hatred or scapegoat a certain population to, to win votes, right? I, I assumed that that's yeah. what was happening. But it was the opposite, in fact. You know, he was making these speeches, and I talked to people and going out to the rural areas, and they said, no, we hate it when he talks about this. We, do, we wish he would shut up uh, because it's embarrassing us. And so it was not necessarily uh, a vote-getting strategy. Maybe he was just curious. <laughs> yeah, well, people have speculated about that. <laughs> Thank you all for listening. Distribution of Anthropotamus is in collaboration with the American Anthropological Association. Please continue to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Anthropotamus for our latest episodes, show notes, and book discussion schedule. <laughs>